Tonight's reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. I read an article this week um, called Campus Suicide and the Pressure for Perfection. And the article introduces us to Catherine DeWitt, a sophomore at Penn, who herself had contemplated suicide. And now she is in a, a campus group that's going around the, the country doing an art exhibit with, um, uh, if we have that slide up, 1,100 backpacks. And they go onto campus and they uh, lay these backpacks in front of the student center or on the commons because that's the number of uh, college students that committed suicide last year. And it introduces this and then says, uh, classmates seem to have it all together. Every morning, the administration sent out an email blast highlighting faculty and student accomplishments. Some women attended class wearing full makeup. Ms. DeWitt had acne. They talked about their fantastic internships. She was still focused on the week's homework. Friends' lives, as told through selfies, showed them having more fun, making more friends, and going to better parties. Her confidence took another hit when she glanced at the cell phone screen of a male student sitting next to her who was texting that he would, quote, rather jump out of a plane, unquote, than talk to her. When on January 17, 2014, Madison Holleran, another Penn freshman, jumped off the top of a parking garage and killed herself, Miss DeWitt was stunned. She knew the woman as popular, attractive, and talented. Despite her cheery countenance and assiduous completion of assignments, Ms. DeWitt had already bought razor blades and written a stack of goodbye letters to loved ones. Ms. Holeran was the third of six Penn students to commit suicide in a 13-month stretch. The school is far from the only one to experience the suicide cluster. In 2003, Duke jolted Academy with a report describing how its female students felt questioned to be, quote, effortlessly perfect, smart, accomplished, fit, beautiful, and popular, all without visible effort. At Stanford, it's called the duck syndrome. A duck appears to glide calmly across the water while beneath the surface it frantically, relentlessly paddles. Nobody wants to be the one who's struggling where everyone else is doing great, said Kahari Kenyatta, Penn senior. Despite whatever's going on, if you're stressed, a bit depressed, or overwhelmed, you want to put up a positive front, citing a, quote, perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor, unquote. The task force 
from Penn report described how students feel enormous pressure that can manifest as demoralization, alienation, or conditions like anxiety or depression. And I, I try to pay attention to kind of what comes up in my heart and mind when I'm preparing. And at first I kept dismissing that because it didn't seem to have much to do with today. Uh, I have been praying for students. Students are coming back. Uh, I've had four children go through college. Uh, so I, I do tend to worry about students. It seems to be a really challenging time to be a student. But I, I, one of the reasons I think that story won't go away um, is that in some ways it reminds me of the church. Um, that for, for many Christians, this sense of always having to perform and be perfect and, and get it right is, is how they experience Christianity as well. And that results in spiritual suicides. Um, I remember a lady who I grew very fond of. She used to sit right there. And uh, she was there about four years, and then she stopped coming. And I emailed her and emailed her and emailed her. Finally, she emailed back, and she said, uh, I never feel worse than I'm sitting in your church. Now, certainly that's some of her stuff and all that, but I've heard that story enough over the years, uh, particularly as sort of the cultural priority of being a Christian, going to church kind of wears off, and people no longer feel that social obligation it just a lot of people just sort of just feel like, why would I want to be a part of that? Life is hard enough without having to be a Christian, too. When I was uh, working on a degree over in Charlotte, North Carolina, I stayed with a, a wonderful doctor and his wife. I'd go over for two weeks and study and come back and did that for a few years. And uh, She was a very godly woman, a very caring and wise mother. She was about 65, had raised some wonderful kids. Loved to study God's Word, loved to study God's Scripture. She was a part of a Bible study that had gone on for like 30 years with Billy Graham's sister, uh, who taught this big Bible study. She really knew the Word of God. And, and one night I said, Barbara, you know, you are such a godly woman, you have so much to offer. Why don't you gather some young women around you and disciple them? Why don't you uh, start pouring into some young ladies and open up the Scripture? I'll never forget, she had this look of horror on her face. She said, oh, I'm not ready for that. She said, I, I'm not nearly mature enough for that. And somewhere along the way, she had picked up this idea that she had to be, I don't know, related to Billy Graham to lead a Bible study, to, to be perfect somehow, to, to be used of the Lord. What kind of people does Jesus use? Um, how does he call us to, to live all of this out. Well, the story that we're looking at tonight is a inter, in, very interesting answer to that. Uh, and it begins, he's just been doing some healing in his hometown. Uh, the religious leaders have uh, been upset by it. And so he leaves and he's passing on from there. And it says that he, he passes Matthew sitting in a tax booth. Now, just real briefly, we'll go over the kind of the context here. It'll help us understand it. Palestine was under Roman occupancy. There were different Roman rulers that had authority over the different parts of Palestine. And when you passed through one to another, you had to pay a toll. And the Romans demanded that you take a certain percent, but then they would hire uh, a Jewish man to sit at the toll booth and then 
they give him the freedom to extort whatever else he could out of his own countrymen and put it into his own pocket. And so that's what a tax collector was known for. So you can imagine these guys were not typically very moral people. They, they were despised, hated um, by their countrymen for making a living this way. William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew, he says this, These tax gatherers universally hated. They'd entered the service of their country's conquerors. They'd amassed their fortunes at the expense of their country's misfortunes. By Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. He was included with things and beasts unclean. He was forbidden to be a witness in any legal case. He was classed together with robbers and murderers. And so we're, we're late in the first phase of Jesus' ministry when he's calling the disciples, and he's called most of them now. He's prayed all night for who he's going to call. And you can imagine the disciples are sitting around a campfire and wondering, well, who's going to get the last slot? And I wonder who we're going to draft. I wonder, wonder who's going to be here. And Jesus calls this guy? One of the most hated men in the community? I wonder what the conversation was like around the campsite that night. I wonder how they felt about this new team member. Jesus invited onto his inner circle, onto his leadership team, a pariah. An immoral man, probably, who lived on the despised outskirts of Jewish life, a moral failure. He became a disciple, he became an apostle. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He helped start the Christian church. What kind of people does Jesus use? People like Matthew. You know, the Pharisees are are always making an appearance in the Gospels, and um, they're kind of a foil. They're the bad guy. And if you read these stories all your life, it's real easy to just kind of roll your eyes at these bad Pharisees and, and there's good reason for that. But lately, one of the things that I've been thinking as I've been rereading these stories is maybe Jesus says so much about the Pharisees in relationship with the teaching of the Lord because all of these characters in these stories exist in our own heart. That there's a, there's a Pharisee in my heart and a blind man in my heart and a disciple in my heart. And tonight I just want to take a moment and think about this Pharisee person because I really do believe he's in our hearts. And that the Pharisee represents one way of spirituality and Jesus is trying to teach another way of spirituality and those are always at war in our hearts, the Pharisee's way and Jesus' way. And, And the Pharisees were devout lay people who loved God's word. They loved the law of God. They studied the law of God. They wanted to get it right. They knew the word of God. They were Bible people. And they felt very strongly, based on some readings of Leviticus and some of the other historical books, that the way you stayed holy was to stay away from bad people. And if you read some of the things that they were writing at the period, they were the ducks. Remember we talked about that image of peddling like crazy underneath? The Pharisees worked as hard as any human being possibly could at getting spirituality right. 
And they believed that if they worked hard enough and got it right enough, that the Messiah would return. That's the way this was supposed to work. The Messiah would come when they got it right. They were the ones Jesus was supposed to recruit his leadership team from. But Jesus does not. And as we read this story, I want us to think about this a little bit because I I really see in our congregation, and as I think of the the many conversations I've had with you this summer, it's just, just been a wonderful summer for conversations. I've appreciated that with a number of you. That there's this battle in our hearts between the way of the Pharisee and the way of Christ. It's always going on. There's this this paddling over here. There's the duck. And then there's the way of Christ. So let's see if we can look at the difference between these two. Matthew tells us, first of all, that the kind of people Jesus calls are not perfect. They're sinful, flawed people. And so the next thing he does is he throws a party. He he calls all the tax collectors and sinners to him for a dinner party. And that little phrase, tax collectors and sinners, was kind of a stock phrase. Uh, It's a little different than how we understand sinners. It meant the people that didn't have the energy or the inclination to keep all the laws the Pharisees had come up with. It didn't just mean bad person. It, it meant people that had just looked at organized religion of the day and said, <laughs> I'm out. I don't have energy to do any more of that. Write me off. And the Pharisees hated them. Now, the Pharisees also felt that if you hung around these people, it would be bad for you. And so they concluded that anybody that would eat with a, Pharisee, with a, with a sinner, which meant to share intimate relationship with, would no longer be worthy of entrance into the synagogue. Jesus knew this. Jesus had studied this in Hebrew school. And so Jesus walks into a city, and and he knows that if he accepts Matthew's invitation to his party, he will be debarred from the synagogue. And the first thing he does is go party with Matthew. He hangs out with these sinners. And I was thinking, well, who would the sinners be today? And again, I don't think he's thinking about, they wouldn't be just the really immoral people. I think he'd be like this friend of mine who I took a walk with on the last day of my leadership Tennessee retreat. And she works in a ballet company in Memphis. And she grew up in church. And then she went to another church. And she got hurt at another church. And she says, we were walking around Sewanee there a couple weeks ago. She says, you know what I do on Sunday morning now? And I said, uh, what? And she said, I go to Starbucks. I get a big latte in the New York Times, and I go home and read it. I said, yeah? She said, I get so much more out of that than I ever did going to church. And I said, is there anything maybe that might draw you back? No. That's who who the sinners are. The people have just tasted enough of it, and they've gotten burned out on it, and they just said, enough, I, you know, I'm going to do life with a latte. I, I just am not going to go there anymore. And these are the people that Jesus likes to hang around. Very imperfect people. And these are the people, if you look at church history, if you look at the epistles, 
these are the men and women that he forms a community with. These are the troops. These are the recruits. This is who builds the church. The the broken people, the flawed people, the imperfect people. And the perfect ones he just kind of bypasses. You know, last week, Danessa gave a, an offering. It was, I thought about it all week. It was so powerful. She, she said, you know, I'm sitting out there a couple of years ago. I've been hungry for community. Uh, and essentially what I, I felt like I needed to do was just invite some other sisters into my home, and we would study the sermon notes together and, and go on a journey together. And I, I felt unqualified. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not trained to study the scriptures but I did it, and my sisters did it, and we stepped out, and it's been this incredibly rich community for the last three years. And as she was talking, I was praying, Lord, please raise up more Denesses. Please raise up men and women that would just step out and look at the people around them and say, yeah, let's do life together. We can do this together. We can look at the Word together. Come on, let's do it. And then I thought, how many of them will say no because they're not perfect? How many of them will think that they just can't be used by God because they don't get it right? There's something about this scene, and I I really struggled to find words for this this week, and I don't think I ever really, really got them there, but Matthew's party where Jesus is reclining at the table. That's how they did it in the ancient Mediterranean. It was a very intimate thing. You'd be on pillows. Uh, you'd, you'd put your head on somebody's chest. You know, these are low-ceiling rooms. It's small. It's hot. There's candles. Uh, the smell of all this food. Uh, I thought, that's just such a powerful image of the church and the Christian life, isn't it? That what Jesus is calling Matthew to, first of all, the first thing he calls him to, the first experience Matthew has as a disciple is a dinner party. Is this tender, intimate fellowship with the Lord. And in the ancient Mediterranean, eating together was one of the signs of familial intimacy, one of the most intimate things that you could do. And if you broke bread with someone, you were sharing, you're my friend, you're my brother. I think this is true in some Mideastern cultures today. And so the first chapter in the school of discipleship is a party. Now what what intrigues me, and, and this might be something you want to ponder yourself, is Jesus obviously cares about holiness. He is holiness personified. Can, can you imagine how you could possibly be in his presence, look in his eyes and somehow not tremble? How could you not? He's just taught the Sermon on the Mount where he expands and deepens the understanding of sin. He, he's going he's to, in the school of discipleship, he's going to talk about sin in many different ways. And yet these sinners are in his presence and they feel totally safe. How does that work? Why does that work? And what What I feel in this passage, and maybe I feel it more than I see it, but just as I sat with it this week, is there's this rest in this passage. 
there's this, I mean, reclining at table. You're lying on a couch. You might have your head on the person's shoulder next to you. The first thing Matthew experiences is laying on a couch with Jesus and eating. There's just this peace to it. There's just this rest to it. Now, there's a lot of work that's going to come, right? I mean, we know the rest of the Gospels. We know they're going to go out and plant the church, and there's all these hard things that are coming in the cross and, and all, the, all these things. But it starts in this intimate dinner scene. It doesn't feel like the duck. This summer, if there was one conversation that I had once, I, I had it you know, many times. And I've been thinking a lot about it. Because there's a common narrative. Um, and it goes something like this. We talk for a little bit. And then the, the, the friend says something like this. I just feel overwhelmed and stressed out. And I don't know why. And so we talk for a little while, and they talk about what they're doing and what they feel called to do and what all the obligations that they have. And it, you know, maybe about an hour later, I'll, I'll say, you know, when I just listen to you, I feel exhausted by the way you talk about your life. I just feel exhausted Now, that may be me again, but it happens so often. Why would my interactions with you so often lead me to feel exhausted? So often this summer, I've just felt this striving, the sense of I've got to get it right, that we ought to be doing more, that there's more God wants out of my life, that I need to, to buckle down and try Harder, And I understand the pure desire in that. That was the Pharisees' desire. But I, I, I think that should come out after the party. And one of the things you might ask the people that are closest to you, does being around me exhaust you? Because it seems to me that if we knew the Lord like Matthew's knowing the Lord, there, there would be plenty of work and plenty of, of effort and sweat and sacrifice and, and all of that good stuff, but it would, it would come out of this love relationship with him. And often, well, you know, as a preacher, I know some preachers, you need to say, need to say to their congregation, you know, get off your rear end and serve the Lord. What... what um, what I find myself often wanting to say to you is, get on your rear end <laughs> and serve the Lord. Stop. You know what I'm learning about us? We can't say no. We can't quit things. When there's a problem, we always feel like we need to solve it. Somebody's burden's always our burden. 
And many of us labor under this intense sense that life ought to be more than it is. And we feel ashamed that somehow we are not doing this grand thing that God called us to do. And you know, maybe a few of you are there. But here's what I'm beginning to wonder. I wonder if that's the Lord's voice at all. I could be wrong, but I don't know. I know in my earlier years when we'd pray for people, there was a time when it seems like we were always praying vision over people's lives. And we were always saying, you know, God's going to do, you're going to be a healer of the nations. You're going to be a ruler of kings. You know, you're going to bless this and Africa's going to come to the Lord because of you. you know? And, and the, you know, that's great stuff when you're 18 and, and you're, you're, you maybe you just got to see an econ. You know, that's fun to hear that you're going to save Africa. But, you know, when you're 30... And, and you're really not doing a good job of saving yourself. It begins to get kind of frustrating that your life isn't doing what you thought it would do. And I, I guess just what I sense as I sit in this passage is that the church ought to be more like Matthew's party. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and sharing lunch and meals together and that when we do that, good stuff will flow out. You know, one of the things we care a lot about is uh, racial reconciliation. and I've been thinking about that for years. I've told you I've failed at that for years. I've read tons of stuff on it. That, by the way, is always the way to solve a problem is you read tons of stuff on it. And, and so I've done that. And I've tried all these silly things and it haven't worked. And so the Lord brings Daryl Arnold, the pastor of Overcoming Believers Church, in, into my life. And so this week we're hanging out and um, Lawrence Talk had called us together to talk about something else. And, and, and we're just doing Matthew's party. We're just hanging out with Jesus. We're just loving each other. And, and then Daryl says, hey, we're having our first year anniversary on August 30th. It means so much to us. Would you invite your church and let us cook you dinner? Do you know what that means? And I said, yeah, you want to come to our birthday party and do baptisms together? He said, sure. And then he texts me right before I got up here. I haven't totally read it yet. Let me see if I can figure out how to do this. Um, be careful here. This is Hunter Bannister, Miss Cole. What does it say? Okay, I'm terrible at this. Okay, he says, yes, and also mention to them the family night at Chuck E. Cheese. And I can't, can't read all of it here, but here's what he's doing. He saw what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore. And he called Police Chief Roush. And they got together and they said, let's not let, let that happen here. And so they've decided to start doing things together with police officers and black youth to build relationships. And one thing they're doing is they're building a roller skating rink in the back of his church. There's one thing he's doing. And then on Wednesday night from 9 to 12, they're having a lock-in 
with the Knoxville Police Department and a lot of black kids uh, at Chuck E. Cheese's. Now, that sounds like a horrible night to me. Um, I was a youth pastor. I've done lock-ins. They're from the pit of hell. But sometimes, sometimes they're worth doing. And Daryl said um, that he, it's, I really can't read it. We'll find out. I think it's 9 to 12 on uh, Chuck E. Cheese's, which ought to be illegal itself. But... Um, so he would like you to go. So where were we? So, but the, the point of that is, you know, I've been working for 25 years to do racial reconciliation and felt horribly ashamed by all my failures and all my racism and all the issues. And now it's just sort of coming out of Matthew's party. Well, uh, the Pharisees are, are concerned, and so they, they ask him, they say, uh, why does your teacher eat with these people, tax collectors and sinners, and they're worried about holiness, and that's a good worry. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, guys, let me tell you who, who my heart is really for. I mean, I appreciate the way you've memorized the entire Old Testament, but see that guy over there who just had a third cup of wine and fell into his souffle? Um, I came for him. That's the guy I'm here for. Because he is clueless. And he needs me. And then he says, guys, go read Hosea 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I I didn't come for the righteousness. I came for sinners. It's about mercy, guys. We're just so clueless. Calvin says this is a picture of the gospel. We have nothing to offer. We have absolutely nothing to offer. We need Jesus' mercy. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't be holy by ourselves. You know, Tuesday we, we did take the children from the swim team to Dollywood Splash Country. And uh, that was a, a day. Yeah. Um, and um, I had four little girls assigned to me, about nine to ten years old. And uh, uh, one of them had mild autism, and her mother was there. But her mother didn't bring a swimsuit, and so I thought, huh. <laughs> How's this going to work? So um, we were getting ready to go in, and I, I do have a phobia of going down things fast and upside down. And so I was talking to the children about I didn't want to do everything in the park. And lo and behold, the first thing that comes up is uh, the um, Sleepy River ride, in, in, or the Lazy River. And you get into a little tube, 
and you go around this lazy river, and there's an exit, and then you all toddle off. And, and I was thinking, that's a great way to start. Maybe we could spend a lot of time on the lazy river. Um, so we get in there, and that was kind of hard. The, the, the little, little tra- sweet child had trouble getting into the tube. We got her in the tube, and the other three took off, and I was following the other three. And, we, and I thought, this day is not going to go that bad. And so we get around, and I'd lost the autistic child. <laughs> And, and I started to ask the guards, and I started to run around, and, and um, it occurred to me, I never told her to get off. And she didn't know that when you go around, there's an exit, and you get out there. And all the girls just went after her. And we all waited and waited back into all the flood of tubes until we found her coming the other way. And I think why that that's keeps coming to me is I think I'm the autistic child. I think that's sort of the posture that we are to take as we approach the Lord. I'm not the lifeguard. I'm not the swim coach. I'm the little girl that couldn't get into the tube and couldn't figure out when to get off. And I needed some nine-year-olds to toddle after me to drag me back. You know, there's a great burden that is relieved when you accept that about yourself. That I really can't do this by myself. That I need you to show me when to get off. You know, the story ends in Luke's gospel slightly differently. Luke says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And I want to end with that because I really don't want to give you the idea tonight that the gospel's really about tolerance. You're a mess, I'm a mess, we're all messes, let's all be messes together. I don't think that's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that you're a mess, I'm a mess, let's be messes together as we repent of our sin and move towards Jesus Christ. You see the, the difference? This is not Dr. Phil. These guys are entering a school of discipleships for which the tuition payment is martyr's blood. This is a hard and sober call, but it's centered around a party. May that be his way with us.